Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission network. Over the last three podcasts, we've been hearing the big top talks from Revive 2016. And today we hear the final talk, this time from Richard Koken, CEO of Co-Mission. The theme of the talks have been eternity, and this one looks at what the vision of Co-Mission and our desire to reach the lost of London looks like in the light of eternity. Richard's talk is from Revelation 19. So let me set the scene in Revelation. In chapters 1 to 3, we've seen the risen Jesus revealed, ruling the universe, including Europe, in dazzling glory and writing to his churches. Warnings for the loveless and lukewarm, encouragements for the faithful and persevering, condemnations for all who tolerate false teaching. And then in chapters 4 to 22, he opens his heavenly throne room, to reveal the great king, the prime minister of the world, Jesus, both powerful lion and saving lamb, who is exposing all nations, whether or not we're in Europe, to plagues of human sin, inflamed by Satan. Do you know them? There's tyranny. We see it in North Korea and in abusive homes. Chaos amongst Syrian refugees or in parliament. Persecution by religious extremists or by bullying managers in the office. Destruction, whether in a Yorkshire MP's clinic or in an NHS abortion clinic. In other words, we're already beginning to experience God's judgment. And then God reveals the future. In chapter 17 to 18, the destruction of Babylon, all the powers of evil. Then in chapters 19 to 20, where we are, the return of Christ. And then finally, chapters 21 to 22, the glorious renewal of all creation. Here in chapter 19, where we're going to read from, there are two great feasts announced by angels. Two ways to live forever, if you like. One is announced in verse 9, and that is the wedding supper of the Lamb, the gloriously happy banquet celebrating the intimate union between Christ and his church, full of love and laughter, ever more joyful as we feast forever on the goodness of Jesus. The other announced in verse 17 is the great supper of God. Birds of the air called to gorge themselves on the flesh of God's enemies like vultures feasting on rotting corpses strewn across a battlefield. And between those utterly contrasting futures for God's people and God's enemies, those two utterly contrasting banquets, there is this awesome description of Jesus coming in judgment to decide which feast you or I will be at and graphically exposes our tendency to domesticate Jesus to avoid his claims on us and the world. Let's read the passage. It's on the screens for you. It's in chapter 19, verses 11 following. I saw heaven standing open And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his throne and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The humble servant who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to die will return as victorious conqueror on a war horse to destroy. The Jesus who looks with compassion on the crowds of London as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd in their desperate need of him will return one day in power to punish all who refuse to turn to him. Let's consider his features, his names, and his activities. Firstly, four features mean he's judge. Verse 12, eyes like blazing fire. Can you imagine that? As an x-ray sees the tumors in our bodies, Jesus sees the sins in our souls with a searching holiness. Again, verse 12, many crowns. He rules with supreme and absolute power over all. As our great queen herself is wonderfully aware, every one of us, however tough and powerful we think we are, is accountable to this king. Verse 13, there's a robe dipped in blood. From Isaiah 63, describing God coming in vengeance against our enemies, declaring, I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments. In other words, Jesus is that God coming as a gladiator to rescue us. And verse 15, coming out of his mouth, is a sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God taught by Jesus that will determine how rebels will be condemned and sentenced for eternity. These four features depict Jesus as judge of the unrighteous, of all who refuse to wash their lives in his blood. And then there are four names. Four names mean he's Lord. Do you see them there in the passage, verse 11? Faithful and true. It's a name for God used by Israel when praying for deliverance from a butchering tyrant called Antiochus. And it's given to Jesus because he is faithful to his promise to deliver us from all our tyrants, from Satan, sin and death. Verse 12, a name that no one knows but himself. It's like the secret names that lovers have for each other. This knowledge of Jesus is preserved for our thrilling intimacy with him. Not yet, but in heaven. Then thirdly, verse 13, the word of God. Jesus reveals God's glory and grace. He is God's message to the world and there is no other. And we meet this personal word of God in the written word of God where God speaks, not behind the texts 
in the events of the past, not in front of the text in the thoughts of our hearts, not above the text as if somehow independently from the Bible, but through the text as we gaze into the words of Scripture and meet with God. 66 text messages from God. And fourthly, verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This supreme title is on his thigh where swords were worn and oaths were made. It was a title used by King Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 4 when turning in faith to acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all kingdoms, including Babylon and her successors. In other words, Jesus is that supreme king. Jesus is Yahweh in skin. These majestic names show that Jesus is fully God as well as fully man. And then 34 activities mean that he's victorious. Do you see them? Verse 11, with justice he judges and wages war. God will crush his enemies with an army of believers, including those of us here who are believers in Christ. Verse 14, clothed in the white linen of his righteous life so that we can share in his victory forever. Although it's striking that the army isn't required to do any fighting. We're just there to share in the victory of Jesus. And then verse 15, to to strike down the nations. Words from Psalm 2 promising that God's king will crush forever the mad rebellion of nations against him and end the global cruelty against his children, of which we can read online. The North Korean authorities who steamroller our brothers and sisters will be steamrolled by our Lord when he returns. Verse 15, he will rule them with an iron scepter. Rule here, the word rule is literally shepherd. For Christ's eternal pastoral care includes protection of his people. Not with a pretty jewel encrusted scepter, but with a powerful rod of iron. We're not to hate our persecutors, but to forgive them and pray for them. For they don't realize what a dreadful eternity awaits them when Christ returns. And verse 15, fourthly, perhaps most horrifying of all, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's a distressing image amplified in chapter 14 in the description of the eternal gospel. It's an image of Christ crushing rebels like grapes in a winepress. And juice representing an ocean of blood, we read, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 180 miles in all directions. An ocean of blood. People we love, people I love, who refuse to trust in Jesus are heading for that winepress, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And I hope you know that our loving Lord only warns us of this terrifying future because he loves everybody in the world and he calls upon us all to pray out, to cry out to him. Perhaps for some of us even this morning, perhaps even right now. Sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please save me for eternity. 
and urgently calls us to reach London for Christ. For indeed, what we're about is not a game. It's about saving people. So what are the implications for commission? How does the return of Christ and the eternity that he brings with him, how does that affect the way we live? Four implications. Firstly, keep speaking about the coming wrath. For judgment is part of God's saving gospel. You may know that in the Bible, the gospel isn't just everything good about living in the world. If you look at what the passages actually say, God's gospel promised a kingdom to Abraham back in Genesis. And it's king in many places in the prophets. He arrived as Jesus Christ our Lord, says Romans 1. That is to say, Jesus, the crucified Galilean, is Christ, the promised saviour king, our Lord, that is our risen divine ruler. That's who he is, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's very easy to remember, it's a summary used again and again in the New Testament. Jesus is Christ our Lord. It's not his first, middle and last name, it's who he is, Jesus. The crucified Galilean is Christ, the promised saviour, our Lord, the risen ruler and judge. And what has he done? Well, four things, says the Bible. He came as our king. He died for our sins. He rose to rule. And he will return to judge. And he will return to judge because Paul proclaims, Romans 2, the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. As my gospel declares, the gospel includes the judgment of Christ. And the Bible says that faith in this glorious, wonderful truth brings us peace and righteousness and hope and grace and life forever in the kingdom of heaven that was promised to Abraham. Or to put it even more simply, it's a swap. God became an ordinary bloke like us so he could swap places on that cross. And there he was treated like us and punished for our sin so that we can be treated like him and accepted into heaven as sons of God. It's a swap. It's a beautiful thing he did for us because he loves us. Of course, judgment will always sound unpopular to sinners. As the psalmist says, Psalm 36, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. But Jesus said that his spirit can convince people of sin, righteousness, and judgment through his word, as many of us here know. And so salvation from the horrors of hell for the happiness of heaven is a powerful motivation for turning to Christ and for speaking about Christ. Can I commend to you a book from the bookstall by Edward Donnelly, Heaven and Hell? Read this book. It's a simple, short book, but it tells what the Bible says. It'll change your life because it shows us what the Bible says about heaven and hell. If we don't talk about God's wrath, well, how will our friends ever understand why they need a savior? How will they ever understand why they need Jesus and why Jesus had to suffer or why the cost of following Jesus will be worth it in the end? You know, I sometimes think if, you know, if, if, on, on your way home, if all the message is that Jesus died because he loves us, well, people are dying all the time. It's a bit like uh, on your way home, Jesus yells at you across the road, uh, hey, I love you. And then he throws himself under a bus. And you think, well, obviously, he, he said he loves me, but I don't know why he's done that. It has no relevance to me. 
And so often we're heard to be saying, Jesus loves you and died on a cross. And people think, that's very nice of him. I didn't ask him to do that. Yeah, but if you're crossing the road and Jesus yells at you, I love you, and throws you out of the way of the bus and is run over by the bus, then you know that he must love you so much as to take your place to throw you out of the way of the bus. We have to talk about the bus that is coming. We have to talk about why Jesus died on the cross and why that demonstrates how much he loves us because it should have been us on that cross. Now, of course, we need to think about how to talk about things. We'll be wise about when and how we talk about judgment. We'll adapt or, or contextualize our approach, our ministry for different people. We'll think about how to say things wisely. But we don't adapt or contextualize the gospel itself. That saves people in every culture and in every generation. We have to find a way to explain that gospel. Probably just saying to your colleague at work, turn or burn you pagan, is not gonna be very effective. It's not a kind and loving way to speak to a friend. So we have to find a way, a culturally appropriate way of saying the same thing. And often talking about our own sin helps. I don't know about you, but I've just discovered that I'm in serious trouble with God for the way I've treated him and the way I treat other people. I don't know about you, but I've discovered I'm a really selfish person and I'm in serious trouble with the living God. But I've discovered there's a loving saviour who came for me. And if you say that, it's amazing how people say, well, me too. If we don't point at people, but explain that we've discovered a saviour who saves us from the wrath to come. If we don't talk about the trouble, we'll be tempted, the future, we'll be tempted to exaggerate. And so many people do on the God channel. We'll exaggerate the blessings of being a Christian now. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once explained, I'm not afraid of being charged as I frequently am with trying to frighten you, for I am definitely trying to do so. If the wondrous love of God in Christ Jesus and the hope of glory is not sufficient to attract you, then such is the value I attach to the worth of your soul. I'll do my utmost to alarm you with the sight of the terrors of hell. And for those of us here today who are not yet committed to Christ, basically I'm trying to say, if the loveliness of Jesus, if the joys of heaven are not enough to persuade you, then think on the horrors of an eternity without Jesus. And for that reason alone, turn to him today. And for each of us, as we go back to where we live and work, imagine if you're working home, let's say I go on for hours and hours, which I sometimes do, and it gets dark. And eventually we get out and you go home and you're walking down the road to your house or, or flat where you live. And downstairs in, in one of the houses, you can see that there are flames that have engulfed the curtains. Perhaps uh, there's a family gone to bed upstairs. You can see the, the, the tricycles and toys in the, in, in the front garden. And, and you can see that somebody's knocked over a, a cigarette and uh, it's caught light. And, and, and downstairs it's on fire. And, and soon the whole fire is going to be, the house is going to be engulfed with flames. I and mean, what do you do? Uh, well, we're very late. I've got work tomorrow. And, uh, I, you know, I'd like to stop, but... Um, 
my, my family are missing me and I, I, need, I need to get back and, and uh, I do lots of other things to, to, to help, you know, to serve God. I better be brave and, and move on. You would not do that. You'd be hammering on the door. Wake up, wake up. You'd be doing whatever you can. Oh, don't disturb me. Don't be annoying. No, wake up, wake up. You'd do whatever you can to rouse the people who don't know that the flames are going to engulf them. Let me tell you something. Your whole block of flats, your whole street is on fire. And you can't do nothing. I don't know what that means for you. Get involved in your church outreach. Plan a Christmas drinks before a carol service for your street. Or a barbecue and a testimony for your block of flats. But do something. Secondly, we need to keep planting churches to reach the lost. Whatever the impact of Brexit, London is a capital city with global influence. It's the political, economic and cultural centre of Britain with 14 million residents, 43 universities and yet London is also an emerging tragedy. Over 90% of the population claim no saving faith in Christ and are headed for an eternity in torment. And many of the people groups in London are almost entirely unreached by the gospel. 80,000 Somalis, 1.3 million Muslims, 460,000 Hindus, numerous Sikhs, Buddhists, Jews and countless atheists. London's greatest need is for hundreds of diverse gospel proclaiming churches. We live in a mission field. And incidentally, that is the best reason for not leaving. To stay and to reach the lost together. On many occasions this year, Staff and leaders have noticed the sobering parallels between London and the tragic sinking of the ocean liner Titanic when it hit an iceberg in 1912. The appalling loss of life was increased, firstly, by a desperate shortage of lifeboats for the number of passengers, just as we need more churches for the numbers of people in London. Secondly, by a criminal neglect of poorer passengers locked below decks while the wealthy boarded the lifeboats just as we need more churches for the poorer communities of London. Thirdly, by a woeful lack of lifeboat training for the crew, just as we must train all our church members to be gospel workers and to recruit more ministry trainees into full-time ministry. And fourthly, by a shocking lack of compassion in the lifeboats, half empty, unwilling to go back for the drowning, just as our churches need to be compassionate lifeboats full of crew dedicated to saving lives, 24-7, 365, and not cruise ships, half full of selfish passengers dedicated to our own comfort. If you look inside the leaflet that was on your uh, chairs, our 10-year strategic plan, just inside the, the opening page, at the bottom in a red box, you'll see what our commission vision is. Our mission aims to assist in reaching London for Christ by planting and establishing 360 diverse reformed evangelical churches for the salvation of many and the glory of God. We want our churches to raise up workers to reach all nations, both here in London and across the world, because the coming tsunami is global. For church planting is not our ultimate goal, it's the means to the salvation of many from the wrath to come for the glory of God. Thirdly, we need to keep developing our strategic support. And so we've developed our 10-year strategic plan to plant and establish 30 evangelistic gospel churches by 2020, 60 churches by 2025. 
To maximize the opportunities, the resources, and the momentum that God has given us, we need to keep developing strategies and structures to support gospel growth. We don't want strategies and structures to take over, but like a vine needs a trellis, we want to provide a little bit of structure to enable the growth to keep going by God's grace. But fourthly and lastly, fourth implication, keep remembering that Christ will come back in victory. Our commission statement of faith has been revised and agreed by our senior pastors and senior elders this year. It's affirmed annually. It's available online. I would encourage you, take a moment sometime to read our statement of faith. It's the thing that, as churches, we all agree on, the faith we proclaim. And there we read these words. The Lord Jesus Christ will personally and bodily return in glory. He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. Unbelievers will be sent to eternal conscious punishment where they're separated from the benevolent presence of God in hell. But those who live by faith in Christ will be welcomed into a life of eternal joy in fellowship with God in the promised new creation. God will make all things new and will be glorified in all things forever. What big truths are summarized there. It's what the Bible teaches. You see, Christ's return is not only a warning to rebels, but an encouragement to believers. For all of us who are scorned by family or friends for following Jesus, he will return in victory. For all of us struggling with mountain illness or with disability, with loneliness or a loveless marriage, with unemployment or with bereavement, with anxieties about our children or anxieties about our parents, he will return in victory. For all of us struggling with our addictions to alcohol, to pornography, to gambling, to wealth, or just attention-seeking, he will return in victory. He is coming back, you know. He will take us home and there forever we'll be with him in joy. There's a wonderful story in 1 Samuel 30 in the Old Testament as King David went after the people who had been stolen from the town of Ziklag. I don't know whether you uh, uh, know the story in, in chapter 30. It's a wonderful illustration of what we're, we're thinking about here. An Amalekite raiding party had uh, attacked and burned the village of Ziklag and they'd seized all the women and children and possessions and taken them away. And David and his men arrived and they wept with grief until their strength and they could weep no more. And then David and his warriors went after the Amalekites. 600 of them went with David. Eventually 200 of them were so exhausted they collapsed and the 400 carried on with David into the ravine where they found the Amalekites with all the people and all the possessions spread across the valley. And we read that David rescued every single one and in 1 Samuel 30, verse 19, he says this, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. And when Jesus returns, not one of us will be lost who have turned to Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus and not in yourself, he's coming back and he will take you home and not one of us will miss out. 
Thanks for listening to the Commission Podcast. To find out more about this year's Revive with guest speakers Kevin DeYoung and Efren Buckle, go to commission.org slash revive.